our scripture passage today is uh, going to be in two parts because it's pretty much pretty long. And the first part that we're going to read before the sermon, and then we'll read the next part in the sermon, is going to be Genesis uh, 25, 19 through verse 34. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and Pandanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled within her together. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was sixty years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. For I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. The next couple chapters is a cluster of vignettes from the lives of Isaac, Jacob, Esau, most of which we're very familiar with. And uh, they're more than just bedtime stories. They, they, they contain profound truth. They teach us that theology is life. That when we live and think and relate, it's all got to be in terms of true religion and true theology. 
And that wasn't just true then, it's true for us today. Think in terms of theology, true theology. Live in terms of it. Talk in terms of it. Let, even let the idiom and the illustrations and the lives of the Bible be so familiar to you. They become everyday language in your conversations with each other. Remember what this section is about. The next 10 chapters is a record of the outcome of Isaac's life. And the most important thing Isaac contributed to history was Jacob. So there's going to be a great deal of information here about Jacob that you are to keep in mind. And remember the theme, all of these <coughs> records, each one of these Toledoths has a separate theme. The theme of the next 35 chapters on the outcome of Isaac's life is that the distribution of covenant promises and the blessings of salvation is determined by a sovereign God alone and not by any decision on your part, not by any choice on your part, not by anything you desire at all. All of the distribution of God's blessings in our lives is determined by the sovereign will of Almighty God. And God begins to tell us that right from the very beginning of this section. The very beginning. Let's go back to the 19th verse and just review a little. You see, you remember Abraham and his wife had Isaac, but they had to pray that God would relieve Rebekah, Isaac's wife, of her barrenness. And so when they prayed, God caused her to conceive. And so two children struggled in her womb. Look, verse 22. Two children struggled. And the word is stronger than struggle. The word is clashed. It's a violent word. They were twins in her womb, and they were fighting each other even before they were born. And we've seen that has been the, uh, the way life has been from the very beginning of creation. Cain and Abel, the very first two sons born into this world, were at odds with each other. And so we find that throughout the history of the world, from the very beginning of mankind, there is this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Both seeds come from the woman. The difference is the seed of the serpent has never been born again. And the seed of the serpent has never been regenerated. And so... Here, why is this pregnancy so violent? Rebecca knew something was wrong. She knew this wasn't normal. And so God tells her, because you're carrying the seed of the serpent, the seed of the, of the woman. You're carrying the church and the anti-church in your womb. You're uh, carrying in your womb those who will be devoted to God and those who will stand against him throughout all their lives. 
This is not just a physical thing. There is nothing normal about your pregnancy, Rebecca. There is a war going on that will continue to go on throughout the lives of these two boys and will continue to go on through the history of the world. So, he uh, tells her, explains what, what's going on, and this is a thing. Look at verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the, other shall, the older shall serve the younger. So you're going to have twins. Normally, the younger would serve the older. But I've planned that it's not going to be that way. The younger, the older is going to serve the purposes of the younger. That's going to be the reason for his existence. The reason for Esau and everybody he represents. That is the enemies of God. The purpose of Esau's life and everybody he represents is to serve the purposes of Jacob and everybody whom he represents. Who did Jacob represent in the Old Testament? Same person Isaac represented, and that is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. You remember the promise that God made to Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed, I'm going to give you a son, and he is going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And through his descendants, every nation and family of the world will be blessed. So he wasn't just talking about Isaac and uh, Jacob. He was talking about Christ and the church. That's the point of Galatians 3, where the seed of promise is ultimately Jesus Christ and those who belong to him by faith. So the purpose of Esau is not to satisfy, as far as God is concerned, is not to satisfy his own will and enjoy his own uh, accomplishments of his hard work. The purpose of Esau's life is to carry out the purposes of the Son of God. Now you remember that. When you see the enemies of God attacking the church, when you see Satan attacking the church, when you see the seed of the serpent uh, attacking the church, remember, they're not doing anything other than carrying out the purposes of the Almighty God. So we're right from the very beginning, we're told about the total sovereignty of God in all of history and in all of life. Now, there's another story that comes up that we're all familiar with. Esau comes up out first. He's rough looking, reddish. And then Esau, and then Jacob is born. And as he's being born, he has a hold of Esau's heel. So you see, they're fighting right from the first moment they breathe their first breath. And the thing to remember is the difference in these two guys physically. It says in verse 27, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, 
living in tents. Now, the word peaceful there means mama's boy. Jacob was a mama's boy. Esau was a rugged hunter, or like the Bible says here, a man of the field. And then right from the beginning, Isaac and Rebekah make mistakes. Right from the beginning. Each one of them has a favorite. See what it says? In verse 28, Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Rebekah loved Jacob. Big mistake. When you have children and you start showing favorites, things are going to happen that you don't want to happen. Our children were young. I tried to live with them in such a way that when they were all grown and I was dead, they would say to their friends, I was daddy's favorite. (laughs) So don't have favorites because then you have big problems. So, Esau's out hunting. He comes back, and he's starving to death. He thinks. And Jacob's in the kitchen, cooking with his mother. A delicious stew. And when Esau walks in, he just can't stand it. The smell of that stew is just overwhelming him. And so he comes up to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I'm starving to death. Haven't eaten in at least an hour. But I have some of that stew. Jacob, you know what Jacob means in Hebrew? Sneaky rascal. All right, so Jacob says to him, Sure, Esau, I'll give you some of my stew. You just sell me your birthright. Now, birthright does not simply mean property and finances. Birthright means covenant inheritance. Everything that the child of promise would have inherited. Everything, physical, spiritual, this worldly, otherworldly, all of the promises of God. Esau would rather have his stomach satisfied than enjoy the benefits of the eternal promises of God. So he said to uh, Jacob, sure, I'm about to die. I'll save my birthright. You just give me some of that beef stew. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. These promises of God, that from your loins will come the Savior of the world, that he will bring salvation to untold millions of people who will bring the blessings of the covenant upon untold millions more of people and you despise the covenant, Esau. 
to despise the inheritance. You know, there's three sentences in the Bible that tells you everything you need to know about Esau. And that's the first one. Here he is, probably not an old man, an older man at all, probably just a teenager. And he already despises the promises of God. I would rather have my desires fulfilled and all my appetite satisfied than to have the inheritance that God has promised his children. So that's one sentence. Turn to another. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. Three sentences. Tells you everything you need to know about Esau. There's a whole chapter in the Bible. It's based upon these stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want to read these verses. Let's start with Romans 9. Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. God has made a decision among the patriarchal lines as to which one of these sons will be chosen as his children and who will not be. So he says, not all of these physical children of Abraham and Isaac are the ones that are heirs of the promises of God, but only those whom God has chosen to be so. Verse 7, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's seed, but through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. In other words, God's spiritual and elect seed is found among the natural seed of Abraham. Verse 9, For this is the word of promise, At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, I hated. So whenever anybody comes to you and tells you that God loves everybody the same, read them that verse. My former pastor, before I came here, I had an elder. My elders, there had never been a, a Reformed person as the pastor of that church. My elders were not reformed, but they were great men. And there was one man particularly that I appreciated and loved. 
but he hated the Reformed faith. And every Sunday when I would preach on a passage of Scripture from a Reformed perspective, the next Sunday in Sunday school, he would preach against my sermon I preached the week before. So I decided I was going to test him. And one Sunday I announced, today I'm going to preach on the verse in Romans 9, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Let's see what he does with that. So sure enough, the next Sunday in Sunday school, he preaches on that text. And here's how he does it. He said, now, I don't know Greek, which was true. He had about a fourth grade education. I don't know Greek. And I don't know what the word hate means. But we know it can't mean to hate because God doesn't hate anybody. <laughs> I like that reasoning. The way people think today, God doesn't hate anybody. So that word hate has to mean something else. You know why they translated the hate in, uh, in the King James Version and the New American Standard Version? Because that's what the word means in Greek. And so here's a man God hated. What was it? Why did God hate Esau? And love Jacob. Passage says he decided to love them before they were ever born or did anything right or wrong. It just was his sovereign will to hate Esau and to love Jacob. You don't like that? That's the way it is. And that's what this whole section in Genesis is telling us. God distributes his blessings according to the good pleasure of his will. Not whether somebody deserves it or not. Not whether somebody is guiltier than the other person or not. That God hated Esau and loved Jacob. Because that's what he willed to do. Somebody came to Charles Spurgeon one day, the great Baptist preacher of the late 1800s. And he said, Mr. Spurgeon, I have a problem with that verse in Romans 9 that says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Spurgeon said, well, what's your problem with that verse? He said, I don't understand why God hated Esau. Well, you know, I got a problem with that verse too, he said. I don't know why God loved Jacob. Sneaky rascal that he was. <laughs> so God didn't love Jacob because he was better than Esau. God didn't hate Esau because he was worse than Jacob. God decided to do. Let's go on. Verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now notice, he's bringing up all these Old Testament people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Moses. The more you understand the Old Testament, the more you're going to understand the way God deals with people. So that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy and does whatever he wants. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Paul's not going to argue with him. Paul says in verse 20, On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? Who are you to question what God has chosen to do? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Questioning God and complaining about the way God does things is like part of a a clump of dough. Of, of mud. You've got a big clump of mud or, or clay that belongs to the potter. It's his. He can do whatever he wants to do with it. And he's decided that he's going to pull that apart into two pieces. And part of that clay he's going to use to make a vase to hold diamonds and rubies and emeralds. And he's going to take the other part of that dough and he's going to shape it into a spittoon. It's used to spit your tobacco in. Now, the part of the clay that's been going to become a spittoon, what would you think if it complained and said, God, who are you? What are you doing making me into a spittoon? Does not the potter have the right to make out of his clay whatever he wants to make? Potter has total freedom to do with his pot of clay whatever he chooses. And so in verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So out of the whole lump of the human race, God that has chosen that some people be vessels to hold his wrath because of their sin. And the others will be vessels to hold his mercy in spite of their sins. 
So you see this whole chapter in the New Testament is based upon the stories that we've been studying in the book of Genesis. So that's two of the sentences to help you understand Esau. Number one, he despised his birthright. Number two, God hated him. Now, looked in Hebrews 12. This is some verse. Hebrews 12, and let's start with verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. By it may many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected by God, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Write a verse to me. God says, make sure there's nobody in your church like Esau. Like that godless and immoral person who despised his spiritual inheritance just to satisfy his stomach. We know in verse 17, now listen carefully. For we know that even afterwards, that is after he sold his birthright and has his appetite filled, He changed his mind. And when he desired to inherit the blessing, changed his mind. He despised it, sold it to Jacob. Now he's thinking about this thing. Realize he made a mistake. I wasn't too smart selling my eternal inheritance for a pot of soup. But, even though he changed his mind, it was too late, and God rejected him. He rejected his inheritance. He changed his mind, decided he wanted it. God rejected him. Or he, that is Esau, found no place for repentance, though he sought for his inheritance with tears. It's a terrible situation to be in. Despise your inheritance, change your mind. Realize you did the wrong thing, a stupid thing. God doesn't change his mind. Because when Esau sought to have the inheritance that he rejected, he wanted it without repentance. He sought for the inheritance without repentance. Repentance. 
even though he sought for that inheritance with tears. I want it back. I did the wrong thing. I know I've given up eternity for a bowl of soup. What a stupid thing. What an evil thing. What a damnable thing I've done. And he's crying. He's crying because he made the wrong mistake. Made a mistake. And he's crying out to God, please give me the inheritance back. Please give me the inheritance. And he's crying. Seeking God to give it back to him. God wouldn't do it because he was seeking it without repentance. Oh, he was crying a lot. But there was not one iota of repentance in Esau's mind. He never repented. He never confessed his sins to God. And that shows you that you cannot be saved without repentance. You can cry. You can shed tears. You can be as sincere as you want to be. God's not going to give you salvation without repentance. Somebody asked Becky's granddaddy, who was a preacher one time, if he believed repentance saved you. He said, no, repentance won't save you, but it's a sure thing you won't be saved without it. And Esau was trying to be saved without repentance. Crying. It's too late. So, that's about everything you know you need to know about Esau. He despised his inheritance. He changed his mind. It was too late because he sought for his uh, inheritance with, without repentance. And God hated him. All right, let's go back now to the 26th chapter of Genesis. These are great stories. Moses was a great storyteller. And remember, when he tells these stories, it's because they have profound truth in them. They help you understand the human nature. They help you understand the nature of the gospel. They help you understand Christ. Now, this other, this next story that's going to we read about, uh, we've read similar things with it before in the life of Abraham. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. We've already read about another Abimelech in that same area. I think probably the word Abimelech was more a title than the name of somebody. Because Abraham had to deal with a man named Abimelech in this same area. And now Isaac's going to deal with a guy named Abimelech in this same area. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Egypt was where he really wanted to go. Now, what God is doing here is testing Isaac just like he tested Abraham. 
You remember Abraham? God would make Abraham a promise. And then he'd delay in the fulfilling of the promise to see if Abraham would continue to trust him in a hard time when it was hard to trust him. To see if Abraham loved God more than he loved what God gave him. So now he's promised Isaac that he's going to give him a land, but he sends a famine. Famines were, were terrible things in that part of the country. It wiped out everything. So Isaac figures, well, I, I better get out of here. I better go to Egypt where I know there's not a famine, where they got a lot of food. Because I'm going to starve to death in this land of milk and honey and this promised land if I stay here. So you see, he didn't trust God. Three, verse 3. God told him to stay in the land. I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. It's going to be a terrible famine, but you got me. Through the other hand, a lot of food and not me or me and no food. God says, you have me. What else do you want in a famine? Sojourn in this land, and I'll be with you. And I'll bless you. Why worry about anything as long as you have me with you? And to bless you, and for to you and to your seed, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Don't worry. Don't go off to some foreign land. Stay in this land I gave you and trust me to take care of you. And I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. And I'll give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What are you worrying about, Isaac? Go to Egypt. What happens to my promise? That all the nations of the world are going to be blessed with salvation. What happens to it? See, once again, in the lives of these old men, back in that day, we see that the destiny of the world is at stake. The history of the world, the gospel, salvation, it's all at stake with the decisions that they make. Verse 4, and I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. Trust me. And I'll give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then, Lord, a verse this next one is. Because you are such a good person, you're not going to trick anybody out of his inheritance. You're not going to be deceitful. No. I'm going to multiply your descendants to be greater than the stars of the sky and cause the nations of the earth to be blessed by you. Verse uh, 5, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Most people I know don't even know that verse is in the Bible. They know it's in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and places like that where you got the law of God. Because, you know, most people drive a wedge. 
between Abraham and Moses. They say the covenant God made with Abraham is this. You're saved by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. And then if you were to summarize the covenant God made with Moses, it would be, you are saved by works and not by faith alone. Books of my library that actually say that. They drive a wedge between the covenant God made with Abraham and the covenant God made with Moses. Say in Abraham's covenant, God says, I'll save you by faith without works. And in the covenant God made with Moses, God says, I will save you by works and not by faith alone. Be surprised at how many people believe that. How many liberal theologians believe that? How many ordinary, everyday Christians believe that? That the covenant with Abraham is what we like. That's the good one. That's where we're taught by, saved by grace through faith. We don't like the one with Moses. It's got too many laws because it contradicts Abraham's covenant. There's actually a whole new theological movement that originates with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia that says that uh, it's called, I forgot the name of it, it's called the uh, Duplication Covenant or something. It tells us that the covenant God made with Moses is a duplication of the covenant of works which God made with Adam, which we know is no longer in effect. So therefore, the covenant with Moses is no longer in effect, and we don't have to worry about keeping his laws. And then right here in chapter 26, verse 5, as clear as day, you got the verse. God blessed Isaac because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. There it is. What's the proof? that Abraham believed in God and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. What is the proof of that? That Abraham obeyed God, kept his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. Not just his laws, but his statutes and commandments and regulations. Not just his statutes, but his commandments and laws and charge. Everything. Whatever God commanded Abraham to do, that's what he wanted to do. And Isaac. They weren't perfect. They made a lot of mistakes. They were cowards on occasion. But understand that these covenants that God makes with people, they don't contradict each other as the Old Testament goes on. They build on each other. God made a covenant with Adam, then God made a covenant with Noah, then God made a covenant with Abraham, then God made a covenant with Isaac, and then God made a covenant with uh, Moses, and then God made a covenant with David. 
And, and, and God doesn't say, okay, you remember the covenant I just gave you? Forget that one. Forget the covenant with Noah, we're going, to, we're going to go with Moses. Or forget the covenant with Moses, we're going to go with David. They build on each other. It's like the opening up of a big angle. God blesses and promises great truths to Adam in a covenant. And then he comes along in Noah and says, Noah, you remember those great promises I made, made to Adam? Keep believing those. I'm going to give you some more. And then he comes to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you remember those great promises that I made to Noah? Keep believing them. I'm going to give you some more. Isaac, you remember those great promises I made your, your, granddad, your daddy? Keep believing them. I'm going to give you some more. And that's the way the Old Testament goes until they're all fulfilled in the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here you have a clear statement that says the proof of true faith is diligent, obedient obedience to whatever God commands you to do. Now there's another thing to look at here. This is a great presentation of the gospel. Do you know that we're all saved by obedience after saying everything I've just said? We're all saved from our sins by obedience. Not our obedience, but the obedience of another. We are saved because Jesus obeyed God in our place. Jesus obeyed God's charge and commandments and statutes and laws without one slip-up as our substitute. So that's a great verse. It tells us what the truth, uh, 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 what the real illustration of the real effect of faith is in your life. If you believe, you will obey. It's the song we sang the other day. Trust and obey. That's what he's saying. That's it. If you're trusting God, you're going to obey him. And then this also says that this is the way we're saved. Not by our own obedience, but by the obedience of Christ in our place. You see, the two things that were required of us to go to heaven. Two things required of every individual. One is that we offer God a perfect life, a sinless life. But we know that we can't produce that kind of life ourselves. So the Lord Jesus Christ lived 33 years as our substitute to give God that perfect life he required of us. And there's a second thing required of us. All our sins have to be punished. And that's the reason Jesus died on the cross. Because if we were going to be punished for our sins, it would take us eternity to do it. But Jesus lived for 33 years to be our substitute in offering God a perfectly sinless life. 
and then died on the cross. Offer God a perfect sacrifice. Our sins. And you see it right here in Abraham. Well, I'd like to go on because there's some great points here about to be made. But if I start looking at these verses, it'll be a good while till I finish them. So we'll stop right here. And here's the gospel. You see the gospel just as clearly in the Old Testament as you do in the New. The gospel and the, and the Old Testament and the New Testament are not at odds with each other. There's no dichotomy between them. The Old Testament does not teach salvation by works. And the New Testament teaches salvation by grace. They both teach salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So remember these stories. There, there's more in them than we normally see. And uh, we'll continue next week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Thank you for what they teach us about Christ, about the gospel, and about ourselves. Pray, Father, that our faith would be true, that it would be real, that it would show itself in obedience to whatever you've spoken. Pray in Christ's name.